Well, whether you are joining us for the first time or the first time in a while here in the building or for those joining us online, we're glad you're here. And today we are wrapping up a short series in our long, ongoing journey through the book of Exodus. And uh, this series is called Decalogue, which is another name for the Ten Commandments. And we've taken the last several weeks and really dug into the heart of one of the most profound passages of Scripture, one of the passages of Scripture that's had the largest influence on justice and on laws and on governments all around the world of any text in the course of history. And so just to give you, catch you up real quick, if uh, this is your first time, um, the first thing we learned in this series was a very kind of counterintuitive idea. It's something very different than you and I often think when it comes to Ten Commandments or law or rules that God gives. And that is this, that very often our common thinking is that God gave us the Ten Commandments or God gives us rules and laws so that it can make us good enough, hopefully good enough, so that he would want to be in relationship with us. And the thing we saw was actually the exact opposite of that, that actually God gave his rules to a people that he'd already saved, he'd already delivered them, and he'd already invited them into relationship. And, and all the way back in chapter 12, before we get to Exodus chapter 20 and, and get the giving of the law, what we saw is God asked them to do a very simple thing, to trust him in the first Passover with a very simple evidence of their trust in him. And then because of that trust, he said, you're, you're, in, you're my people. And that's the same thing we experience today, uh, is that we trust God, we trust Jesus, we put our faith and trust in him to enter into relationship. We don't somehow keep laws and keep rules good enough that we tip the scales in our favor. And so that was a profound thing, and it's very, very important when we talk about Ten Commandments when we talk about law. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the first four commandments. And today we're going to look at the remainder. And here's the thing. Um, really, the, everything builds on these first four. And at the beginning of this, we saw that it's all about honoring God as the center of our lives. And the reason, you know, we're going to move more quickly through these last six is because when you get these first four, the idea of honoring God as the center, the proper center place in our life, honoring God's name, honoring um, his reputation, not doing anything in God's name that God wouldn't approve of, honoring God by acknowledging our dependence on him, that we are actually dependent on him and trusting him for our provision. The bigger message behind Sabbath and this is really the foundation of the rest of these rules. So after this, after these rules, basically about honoring God, about how we relate to God and placing him in the proper place in our life, God does something amazing. After he lays this foundation, he builds an incredible structure on top of that foundation that has gone on to shape societies and laws and our understanding of justice all around the world. And the remainder of the Ten Commandments are all about valuing and honoring the people around us, the people who are made in the image of God. And this thinking is, was just so revolutionary at this time in history. It's hard to help you understand how significant this was in this period of history because you have been so steeped in the value system that came out of this and you have been so steeped in a value system that came out of the teachings of Jesus that it's just sort of part of your normal way of thinking. 
But it, th- these things were so profound. You remember these laws, these rules, the Ten Commandments were given to us around 3,500 years ago. This was in the midst of ancient barbaric cultures. And the value system in these laws had never been heard of or thought up in this time in the nations that surrounded them. In fact, I think this is just an incredible evidence. This historical fact is an incredible evidence that God actually wrote these and delivered them. Because if Moses had written these and tried to come up with these on, on his own, there's no way that they would have been this. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And so I think just that these, these things emerged that God handed, literally handed, wrote these 10 things down, and then he goes on in the rest of the first five books of the Bible to expound on that and actually to build a structure for society. But God speaks at this point in history to this people that he's just delivered out of slavery. And, and before he even gets to the law, he says to them, hey, you need to know me. I want to tell you my name. I am that I am. I am. I am ultimate reality. I am ultimate truth. I am the objective source of truth. Objective truth derives in me. And because of that, he goes on to say, hey, for for you, my people, there's going to be something revolutionary in history. There's not going to be a king or a prophet or a religious leader that decides what the law is for everybody. Because I am the source of objective truth. I am going to be the divine lawgiver. And you will be a nation ruled by law, by divine law, the law of God. And and this is so profound. This is so profound. You can't miss this. He says, no one is above the law. No one is above the law. And in history, this was just an unheard of thing. That there would be a law and and a king or a ruler, those that were mighty and powerful, were not above that law. They were held actually accountable to the law. God says at creation, I made people in my image. And so the Ten Commandments, when he comes to the Ten Commandments, he's going to spell out both how we relate to him and then how that affects the way we relate to other people that are made in his image. And and the profound significance of this is that it means everyone had rights and equal status before God. Everyone had rights. And this is really an unheard of concept in ancient civilizations. In fact, still in even some modern civilizations, this, this is very foreign still. There's, you know, a whole class of people called the untouchables in, in India, right? And various places in the world. But this had the effect, this law had the effect of raising everyone's status. Raised the status of, of men, of women, even of servants, even animals in the culture. We saw last week, servants, you, they... Last week, you had to provide rest, a day off, for everyone in the culture, even the animals. It is this beautiful thing. And as this is expounded through the law, there's rights that God gives rights. And God said in the society that everybody is under his authority, the authority of God, and under his law. In fact, God didn't really even want them to have a king. He he begins by by starting this whole thing by saying, I will be your king, because God knew when you get a king or you get a monarch that ends up coming and creating a rule or creating a law, 
um, they feel free to break their own rule or law. You seen that? That if a law doesn't derive from a divine source beyond us, if we create our own law and our own rule, rule, the person who created that rule feels free to break their own rule. We see this all the time, don't we? In fact, I bet you've done it. You have some rules in your house that apply to your children, but not you, right? You feel free to break them whenever you want. I, when my son was little, we, we were trying to like manage the whole sugar thing because you know what sugar does to kids if you have kids. And if you're grandparents, you don't care anymore. You're just like, sugar them up, send them home, right? Um, <laughs> but my kids were trying to like manage the, the sugar level. And so their reward when they do, do things um, was we'd give them two chocolate chips. Now, they were the big chocolate, you know, the nice ones. We'd get that giant bag of chocolate chips at uh, Sam's Club, you know, but sugar and chocolate and caffeine not great for kids' behavior. So they would get two chocolate chips, and this was a real big treat at this point in our home. And I remember one night, because uh, I created this rule. <laughs> and I decided, you know what? I made the rule. I can break the rule, right? And so I remember one night after we put our kids to bed, I had a bowl of chocolate chips. I'm sitting on the couch watching TV, right? And I think my son sniffs it all the way from like three rooms away, you know? And he comes out, and he's like... What do you got there, Dad? <laughs> Nothing. Chocolate. I'm like, yeah, go to bed. Get to bed, right? Because the rule, I, I made the rule up. So I felt very empowered to break my own rule, right? And God knew that if you come up with the rules, you're going to end up feeling like you're above the rules. And before you know it, people are going to suffer. And this concept of law instead of a king was just so odd at this time in history. It was so hard for people to wrap their minds around. In fact, several generations after this law was given, the people demanded a king. And God tries to talk them out of it and says, believe me, you don't want a king. You get a king, you get all the taxes, they're going to oppress you. They're, you know, they're going to make you build their giant homes. They're going to draft you in to go out to wars. They're going to do all this stuff. And they say, we've gone a king, so God gives them a king. And sure enough, the kings corrupted the nation and led them away from God and the law of God and away from freedom and into bondage and into exile. But throughout all that, God preserved this incredible text and he preserved this incredible um, idea that there is a divine law that flows out of objective truth from the one who created everything from the one who is the source of truth. And a couple hundred years ago in 1776, some 3,000 years after this was written, a group of men decided to launch an experiment in freedom. And they said, we're going to establish a nation with a foundation of divine law. In fact, there's not going to be a king or a queen or a prophet or a priest who's above the law and creates it. And they recognized that this law that God had given thousands of years, you know, some of the application changes, this all doesn't apply in the same way now as it applied back then. Some things, this is just for this ancient culture in, in, in an ancient time as you go through the Torah, right? In the first five books of the Bible. But they recognized that ultimately it was God who was the ultimate source of divine truth and divine law and rights. And so they, they launched a nation based on the concept 
of a creator who had given everyone value and everyone rights. In fact, that's why they penned these famous words that you probably know by heart, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. For what purpose? For the preservation of freedom, right? To secure these rights. And here's what we know. That from the lens of history, we we know that in nations where the concept of divine law exists and where people's um, innate value is recognized as not something that's assigned to them, but something that's God-given, that everyone's position is elevated. And it leads to freedom and prosperity. Because everyone is created in God's image, all have value in God's eyes. All people are to be treated with dignity and respect. All people. In fact, uh, Lauren Cunningham, the founder of Youth with a Mission, who I got to meet a year ago, just briefly, and I, he, I'm sure he doesn't remember me, but it was like, been my dream. I served with this organization, and I see Lauren Cunningham as one of the great, still living um, men of God in this age. And I got to briefly shake his hand and say hi to him a year ago because he came to town for a funeral, the guy that founded YWAM Cimarron, Charlie Green, great guy. So anyway, um, I'm getting sidetracked, but he wrote a book called The Book That Transforms Nations. And what they studied is where the principles of divine law found in Scripture were applied in cultures and brought into cultures, that it transformed cultures in a very uh, fast amount of time, like in in, uh, modern Scandinavia, from barbaric cultures where human rights abuses happened all the time to some of the freest, most prosperous, and happy nations in the earth where principles of divine law found in Scripture were applied, right? And what we see around the world is in nations where there's no recognition of divine law, human rights abuses escalate. Or in nations where uh, they came back and there is a recognition of a divine source of law, but it always is both um, the law and the prophet has a lot of authority. They're right there at equal status with the law, human rights violations occur as well. That's what you see. In fact, the last century, the godless um, ideologies of Marx and Lenin, which unfortunately have been creeping up in so many conversations in our culture today, these, these godless ideologies that the state is the ultimate authority, that the state is the assigner of value, um, have resulted in terrible Terrible violations of people's human rights. In fact, in a hundred years of communism, there have been a hundred million people killed because of that. That's the history of the last hundred years as nations begin to drift away from the concept of divine law. Nations with the basis of divine law, people's status and rights are elevated. And so this text... This concept was a unique gift to a nation. But remember, the purpose of this nation is to be a light to the nations, to be a nation of priests to the nations. And our nation was originally built on this principle. 
that I want you to live your life in line with reality, in line with objective truth under divine law, which gives everyone right. So let me just say, as, as our nation sort of struggles through, one of the biggest and most important conversations we can have is, is there a source of objective truth and is there a source of divine law? And a phrase I hear going around so often, all the time you hear it, you see it, you hear people talking about it, is, hey, speak your truth. Speak your truth. Speak my truth. This is my truth. This is your truth, right? And where we're headed, as a society, as, as more and more people reject divine law and divine truth, we're headed towards a place that's actually quite frightening. And that's a place where, where the ones who get to decide what the truth is and what the law is, or the ones that create the law, do not see themselves as accountable to the law. And let me just tell you, when that happens, the weak and the vulnerable suffer. Those without power suffer. It's a pattern that's been re repeated in history over and over again. That's why this concept is so important for us to understand. Now, as we get to the second half of the Ten Commandments, as we get into the, the text here, um, these incredible laws that are so ahead in this time in history, so revolutionary. And it's because no human made them up. As this chapter starts, the beginning of chapter 20 starts, it says, and God spoke these words. Decalogue means 10 words, which is how the Jews understood this passage of Scripture. 10 instructions, 10 words that all the rest of this falls under. And these things come from the very heart of God. They show us what is important to God. And like we said, the first four start with honoring God. And then the next commandment starts with honoring someone else. And it's probably not who you would guess. If Moses was just writing this and making this up, um, as in some other world religions, uh, the next law would be honor the prophet. Honor God, honor the prophet. But that's not where he goes. In fact, it's kind of surprising where he goes. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, number five says this, honor. Remember, we just finished talking about honoring God. Honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. You're like, really? It's kind of surprising that's in there. I mean, really, if Moses had, had just made this up and written it, think about it, leading this group of people through the desert who keep grumbling and complaining if I was writing this, I would put something pretty clear about honoring your leader. Obey your leader, right? Listen to the great prophet. But no, he says, honor your mother and your father. This is, this is what God writes next. So that, there's a, there's a promise that goes with this, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your, your, your mother and your father. Now, honor here, it's a place of respect. It's respecting them, respecting them, holding them in esteemed place, providing for them in their old age. All these are concepts that we see as, as this is developed throughout um, Scripture that are part of this. This doesn't mean blanket, you have to obey everything. If you have an aging parent that can't take care of themselves, you... you that's not the concept here. The concept is you hold them in high regard. You don't do anything that minimizes. You honor. You, you provide honor. And part of that is you don't just write them off and write their belief system off, right? And here's, here's what's so significant about this. This is an entire nation group that had never had their own land. 
They have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. They've never had a place to call home. And now God is taking them to inherit the land that he promised them. And he says, I want you to honor your mother and your father so that when you get into that land, you may live long in that land. You may, as a nation, as a nation, you may live long in that, in that land. And we tend to individualize everything in, in the United States. So as we look at a lot of these, this is very much a corporate cultural thing. And, and the heart behind it is that the individual person's actions, when it comes to the state of your family and relationships in your family, end up impacting the whole nation. That the state of the family impacts the whole nation. And if you have... Um, Children who decide, I forget you, mom and dad. I'm going to walk away from you. I, I don't believe in your authority. I don't believe in what you taught me. I'm going to walk away from it. God knows. They're just going to go after all the, uh, you know, the gods of the, the nations surrounding them. Before you know it, they're going to descend back into bondage. They're going to find themselves um, in cultural practices and religious practices that are abhorrent to God, like sacrificing their children which is exactly what happens down the road as they begin to abandon the faith of their mother and father. And God says, your individual family has incredible national significance. The way that the family goes is going to end up being the way that the nation goes. If you know anything about history and culture, you know that the individual family unit is one of the things that most impacts a nation. This is revelled 3,000 years ago. God understood this. And so he writes, honor your, your mother and father. He declares the significance of the family unit, the nuclear family within the nation. And it's so profound, right? And we know as we study culture that in the places where there's the most crime, in the places where there's the most poverty in, in our nation, it's the places where the family has most deteriorated. Right? It's the places where there's the most fatherlessness. Where there's not a value around the nuclear family. And so God starts this whole thing out by saying, honor your parents. Honor them. Don't just walk away. Don't discard what they believe because it's them. It's your parents. Honor your parents. We know the history, what happens. In, in Israel, as they abandon the faith of their parents, they descend into bondage, slavery, false idolatry, worshiping idols, and then, before you know it, into exile, don't they? Until the people remember and come back around to the faith of their fathers. So he begins, honor Honor your mother and father. And then he finally gets to the commandments that the man on the street, that we all remember, right? This is way down. Like, this is week five of the series. This is way down in the list. He finally gets to the ones that if you just stuck a mic in somebody's face on the street, these are the ones they're going to start with. But you understand, this all comes out of the framework of properly honoring God as the center point of your life of not having other idols or things in your life that replace God, of honoring him as your source. And once you do that, once you do that, these others flow so much more naturally. Because if you do that, you're not going to do these next three. Because you trust God. 
because you honor him, because you place him in the center of your life. And so way down in the list, he finally gets to the common ones. If I ask you, what are the Ten Commandments? You're probably going to start out with, even though you were raised in church, oh, don't what? Kill. Murder. Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. I want you to honor other people's lives. Don't murder. And in Hebrew, the context here, uh, some of you learned it growing up as do not kill. And our understanding of that in our language is not actually accurate. This, this translation, do not murder, is the proper connotation, which means there should be no unjust taking of a life. Doesn't mean no capital punishment or any of that, but it does mean don't murder what we would think of as murder. In fact, our legal definition of murder and our understanding of that comes out of the law of God. And as he expounds on this, like, you know, what about manslaughter? What about all these things? There's, there's, there's things as, as they build the society where God defines different things as you continue on in the, in the uh, next four books of the Bible. So don't murder. Honor other people's lives. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. You should honor your marriage and you should honor other people's marriages. That marriage is a sacred and a holy thing that should not be violated. Honor other people's marriages. Don't commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Honor other people's possessions. Don't steal. And this is so cool because God, all the way back at this point in history, um, God affirms and implies ownership, private ownership of property. And in this culture, there's no one above the law, not some powerful person, not some king, not someone in authority. No one can come in and steal what belongs to you. Don't steal. Everyone had ownership. And it was against the law to take away something of someone else's that did not belong to you. So he says, do not steal. And he goes on, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, some of you learned this growing up as do not what? Lie. And while certainly um, there's the application there, I think this is a better translation of the Hebrew that really you know, brings up the connotation of what this means. And there's a very legal sense in here of don't give false testimony. Why? Because when you do, it undermines the whole legal system. It undermines people's rights, people's reputations. When you go around telling things, saying things about people that are untrue, you undermine the fabric of a society. And so don't lie about people. Don't lie. This, this, this isn't a command to not be tactful. Or this isn't a command at every point that you can never withhold a little bit of information. Um, case in point, um, you know, if husbands, I'm just going to give you a free one here. If your wife asks, um, does this dress make me look fat? You know the correct answer to that, correct? No! And this command, this command isn't like, just be a jerk. That's not what this is about, right? And the other thing it is, is that you can't withhold information um, to protect other people, right? In fact, we know like Corey Ten Boom um, hides the Jews during, during World War II from the Nazis. 
And she had this little room. I got to go in and sit in this little room in Amsterdam or just outside of Amsterdam and uh, got to sit in this, this room that they built in the house to protect the Jews. It doesn't mean when Mr. Nazi walks in and goes, do you have any Jews in here? He's like, I can't break the law. I can't lie. Uh, no. Or yes, actually. Let me go and show you right where they are, right? doesn't mean that. And this is... Uh, as you go through the rest of Scripture, you discover this. But really, there's this idea that you honor other people. You honor other people's reputation. You don't lie about people around you in order to get something you want. In order to put yourself in a better advantage. You don't gossip about people and impute their character. Which if you do, you're not God. You don't know their heart. Right? You don't do that. When you're on the stand, you tell the truth. Otherwise, it will undermine the whole fabric of society. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. And then, and then, God gets to a command that you, if this was being written by Moses or just by a human or, you know, you would never put this in there. I mean, to us, it just doesn't, I don't even know if it really... Like when you read this, you're like, wow, that's, that's a law? Here's the thing. This is an unenforceable commandment. This is an unenforceable thing. In fact, this, out of all the significance of, of you know, the, the things that have made it into law and constitutions all around the world, this one never made it into a constitution. Nobody's ever had the police called on them for violating this commandment. But it's so important. It's so important because this is the commandment where God says, hey, I want you to understand you are accountable to me. Not just for what you do, but for where you allow your heart to go. For where you allow your emotions and your heart and your mind to go. In verse 20, verse 17, it says this, you shall not covet, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet. And coveting is this idea, not just of, it doesn't mean you don't look at your neighbor's house and go, hey man, nice house. That's not the heart behind it. The heart behind it is when you see that house or you see that car or you see that possession and it's like there's something inside you that realizes they have it, I don't, and it just begins to eat you up. It's a strong desire in fact, uh, it's compared to envy. If you, if you go on to Proverbs, the author of Proverbs, um, it says envy rots the bone. And there's something corrosive about covetousness. There's something that it does within you that ends up changing you. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And God's saying in here, um, I want you to pay attention to what is going on in your heart. When you hear, um, a good way to think of this is when you hear someone that maybe you don't like too much or that person, they're always better at youth sports, they always had, you know, the more popular girlfriend or, or boyfriend, and then, you know, you got done with school and now they have the bigger house and drive the nicer cars and all that, and you hear that maybe they hit a little bump in the road, something bad happened in their life, and, and there's this little thing, this icky thing that rises up and is just a little bit happy. And we all recognize that that's just icky, isn't it? comes from a root of covetousness, a root of envy. 
And he says, don't do that. Guard what's in your heart. Protect what's in your heart. Again, this is unenforceable. If you were just making this up to put in a rule of laws for your nation, you would never put this in there. But see, that's the difference between divine law, between God. He's saying, hey, guess what? On the individual level, you are accountable to me for where you let your heart go. The founders of our nation understood this. In fact, John Adams wrote this. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to to the government of any other. In other words, he recognized that for people to, to be free in a society and maintain this freedom, you had to have people who were willing to govern themselves internally because they understand that there's a God outside that they're accountable to. When you don't believe that there's a God ultimately that you will be accountable to, that you will stand before one day and give an account for your life, you are liable to do all sorts of evil, horrible things, and that is the history of the last hundred years. Just go look around the world. And so Jesus will come along and talk about covetousness. And he'll, he'll, he'll help us understand it a little more when he says, you've heard it said in the law, do not commit adultery. And you're like, yeah, check, doing good. He says, but I tell you that if you've lusted after a woman, you've already gone there in your heart. And God is worried and concerned about what's going on in your heart. He says, you've heard it said, don't kill. (laughs) But I can check that one off, right? And Jesus said, but if you've ever hated your brother and sister, you've gone there in your heart. And I want you to pay attention to what's in your heart. Because, what did he say? Out of the heart flows evil, murder, Adultery, all these things, it comes out of the heart. It originates within the heart. And this command, the Ten Commandments begin with the heart. Honor God in your heart as the center of your life. Guess what? That's unenforceable too. I can't tell if you're placing God at the center of your life, right? And they end with the heart. Don't covet. Guard what's in your heart. Because if you don't, you are liable to go places that you never thought you would go. And just so they don't wiggle out of this, God goes on, he says in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not covet his male or female servant, his ox, that would be like, you know, his big old Dodge Ram pickup truck, the one you're drooling over, um, or his donkey, his Harley, um, or anything, anything, no wiggle room, Anything that belongs to your neighbor. You are accountable to the lawgiver for where you let your heart go, for what you allow to reside and stay in your heart. And God is commanding you to guard your heart, to guard your motives. And so the bottom line, if you want to sum up the whole Ten Commandments, I think you could sum it up this way. Honor God, honor others, guard your heart. Honor God, honor others, guard your heart. Guard what's happening in your heart. Make sure your heart is in the right place. Now, let me just ask you, wouldn't it be amazing to live in a nation where everyone did this? Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, seriously, you know, all the stuff going around, defund the, the, the police, um, <laughs> which is a terrible idea. 
But if everyone in a nation did this and governed their own hearts, honored God, honored others, and governed their own hearts, you wouldn't need them, would you? You wouldn't. In a society where everyone did this, can you think of how much less corruption there would be? I had this speaker, Indian speaker, that came to uh, one of my schools in Africa, Vishal Mangalwadi, incredible thinker. And he was talking about the differences in cultures where they went through Holland at this point years ago with somebody and they saw this milk stand just sitting out there and it was an honor system. You put in your money, you take your milk and leave. And this Indian person that was with him was like, I cannot believe this. This would never work. And he said, yeah, but don't you understand that that when you have a society of people who govern themselves and choose to do the right thing because there's a lawgiver, everything works better. All of a sudden, you don't have to hire a middleman to sell that milk, right? So your milk's going to end up costing you much less than it would otherwise. Because why? Someone guarded their heart and chose to do what's right. Can you imagine living in a nation like this? It would be amazing. Now, Jesus boils this, this down. You guys know what he boils it down to. In fact, the whole law and prophets, like the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as our Old Testament He boils it down to the two most important things are what? Love God and love others. Both of those flow out of the heart, don't they? And so really, very similar to this, the two are virtually synonymous, aren't they? You honor God, you honor others, you guard your heart to his people. God says, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to remember. You honor me. Put me in proper place in the center of your lives because when you don't, you run after other gods that bring you into bondage. Honor others because they're created in my image. And because of that, they have, they're equal. They're on an equal status to you. They're my kids. Honor my kids. I get ticked off when you abuse my, my other kids, right? And then I want you to be careful to watch your heart. Because all this stuff is going to flow out of there. It's all going to come from there. And the goal in this is not, so you think of the Ten Commandments. The goal isn't, I'm going to give you these rules so that you can try real hard and be good enough that I want to have a relationship with you. Remember, they're already in. He's already saved them and delivered them. They've trusted in him. They're his people. He says, I am your God. In fact, He knows they're not going to do this perfectly. In fact, in the law, he makes provision for what happens when you break the law. How how, how do you come? What what do you do? He he knows the law will be broken, right? The goal behind that isn't just to create good people. The goal is to keep people who he has freed and delivered from bondage, to keep them free. That's his goal. I want to take the people that I've freed and delivered from bondage, and I want to keep you free. I want to keep you free. I want to keep you free from the consequences of sin in your life. And so I'm going to give you some some rules to tell you 
how to operate within your marriage, within your business, within your finance, within your relationships, within your sexuality, within your morality, within your ethics. I'm going to give you instructions and guidelines around all these things. Not so that you, you can somehow do just good enough and tip the scales in your favor and have relationship with me, but because I love you and you're in with me through trust in me, and now I love my kids, and so I want your joy, I want your freedom, I want you to prosper. And in our minds, law is the opposite of freedom. But God says, actually, when a society interacts this way, when a society does this, that's freedom. That's a place you'd want to live. That's a kid that you want your daughter to marry. That's somebody that you want to hire in your business. Somebody that'll do that, right? He gives us these things so that they will not end up paying the price long-term for living in a way that violates truth, violates the way that God created the universe the consequences, so they won't experience the consequences of sin. See, what you think is you can go on, you can just violate God's law over and over and not experience the consequences. It's a law. It's like gravity. You will experience gravity. It's like living, um, living contrary to God's instructions. You will end up paying the price long term. It's like trying to live on a credit card. That will come back to bite you. I know. I tried to finance a year worth of music career on a credit card in my early 20s. Yeah. And he helped me drive around the country to do it. And it took me till my mid-30s to dig out of that mess, right? And God wants to save them. He wants to save them. Now, the way this section ends is really fascinating. Um, here's what Moses writes happens next. So God's just given the Ten Commandments, this incredible, profound, these rules about how you honor him, how you honor others, and protecting what's in your heart. And it says this, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke. You remember a couple, four, five, six weeks ago when Jason talked about the holiness and the power and just the incredibleness of experiencing God. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and, Moses, and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not God have God speak to us or we will die. It's impressive. It's powerful. It's scary. They encounter God in this way, and it's profound in his power and his might and splendor. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. In other words, God wants them to understand his power so that they will obey him, so they will stay free from the terrible consequences of sin, so that they will stay a free nation. And so just to help them remember, I want them to remember and experience in a dramatic and powerful way who I am. And then let that memory, let that fear of God, the truth 
that you will stand before a judge, stand before a God, give an account for your life. Let that fear motivate you to stay away from sin. Not in a, in a terrified way, but in this awe and this reverence, right? As a follower of Jesus. And that's why in the New Testament we're reminded over and over, just like God sent the law to keep them from sin, God sent his son to pay for our sin. And unlike Israel that we're told in Hebrews that, that who came through the blood of goats and lambs, we've come through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's called grace. Unmerited favor, the fact that we have forgiveness and life in him through what he did for us when he died on the cross, grace. And so how should we live in response to that grace? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans, and I'm going to invite Winston up right now. We're going to close in a, in a song. But the Apostle Paul says this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? In other words, oh, these laws are written for ancient people, ancient times. They don't, they don't apply, apply to us. What then? Should we sin, do whatever we want, live whatever way we want? Because we know we have forgiveness. Jesus forgives us. Paul says, by no means. Like, how could you even think that way? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. And as he instructs us throughout the New Testament, through Jesus, through the apostles, through Scripture, through the prophets, the heart of God is that you would remain free from the things that held you in slavery, from the things that did not produce life within you. When it comes to your, your moral life, when it comes to the, your relationship with your possessions, when it comes to all these things, there's a way that leads you to life, to joy, to fulfillment. And God's commands are given for a purpose. He, he gives them to us to keep us free from the penalty and the consequences of sin because he's your heavenly father. And if you place your faith and trust in him, you are his child and he loves his kids. He wants what's best for his kids. Paul goes on. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Just what, that's the natural result. That's where it leads. Both destruction in this life and played out eternally without the forgiveness of, of Jesus eternally. But the free gift, but the gift of God, a gift, something freely given, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. It's a favor. It's grace from a heavenly Father who loves you and wants what's best for you. And if I could have you take one thing away from this series, it would be this. I, I would love to have you think differently. And that's this, that when your heavenly Father gives you instructions, they are for your joy and for your freedom. So many times we have this idea of God just trying to hold us down and keep us from things that are good. And the truth is when God gives us instructions in our life, it's for our joy. It's for our freedom. It's, it's not so that somehow you can get in to be okay with me. It's because I've, I've invited you 
into relationship with me. And you're my children and I love you. And I want what's best for you. I don't want you to have to learn the hard way. I want you to trust me because of who I am. God is for your freedom and joy. He knows what will bring life to you. God's not holding out on you. He loves you. He wants you to be free. Would you stand? And if you are in the room and you have never actually taken the step, or if you're joining us online and you have never taken the step of placing your faith and trust in Jesus, that is the way you get into relationship with him. And right now, wherever you're at, um, I want to invite you to do that. And maybe some of you, your heart's just kind of beating a little fast. You know, I've never really done that. I've, I've never really made that choice. I've always had the idea that I'm a pretty good person, you know, and I, and I go to church and, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. I think I tip the scales. He's saying, no, no, no. You get into a relationship with me by trusting me, by trusting me. And so if that's you in the room or online, I just want to invite you to pray a simple prayer like this. It's just an expression of that trust in him. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I can't make it to God on my own. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died and rose again. Forgive me. Welcome me into your family. Give me life. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, for all my other friends, I pray that you would just give them um, just that shift in thinking. Lord, especially right now for the young people in the room, that you would give them a shift in thinking that the guidelines and instructions you've given them come from the heart of a father who loves them so much and desperately wants to see them have freedom and joy in their lives. And I pray you would just shift their thinking shift their heart into experiencing that love. And they would build their life upon the firm foundation of your truth, objective truth, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name.